Welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War Podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. We're up to episode 138, and it's a week to go before the all-important Boer Conference in Vereniging starting May 15th, 1902. Lord Kitchener's ordered his men, in all intents and purposes, to stop chasing the Boers, stop the burning of farms, and wait for the end of the conference. We have heard how Jan Smuts and Louis Boerter met in the Eastern Transvaal, chose their representatives, and now we're making their way to the southeastern border town on the banks of the Vaal River. That was on the 4th of May 1902. The Western Transvaal Boers were doing the same, selecting 30 representatives who would debate the future of their people. So too were Free State President Steyn and die-hard General Christian de Wet. Except for the outcome. They wanted the Boer Conference to reject surrender and to push on to oblivion, which is what awaited the Hawks, I'm afraid. Lord Milner, the British High Commissioner, also wanted the Boers to fight until they were totally crushed so that he could flood South Africa with English loyalists. In military terms, you know you're in trouble when your most hated adversary thinks your strategy should be to fight to an inevitable death. That's what the loyalists through South Africa wanted, the English-speaking hardcore British imperialists. Yes, they were shouting, keep it up, Mr. Boer, until your terms of surrender are unconditional, then you'll be all but extinct and we can just take over everything you've built. The most vocal jingoes of the day were actually despised by the professional British soldier corps in South Africa. The war needed to end so that they could get on with their careers. Winston Churchill was one of those who found what they were known as loyalists as deeply concerning. He'd survived a Boer prisoner of war camp and many close calls and respected his former captors. There was very little rancor between him and the Boers. While the Boers and the British were framing their views and devising their negotiation strategies, an incident in Natal on May the 6th was to sharpen everybody's minds. Some historians have suggested that what became known as the Holkranz incident gave further impetus to the peace process and strengthened the hand of the moderate Boers like Smuts and Buta, who wanted to end the war immediately. Stein and de Wett, on the other hand, took the opposing view. Fight on! was their rallying call. Watching all of this closely was black South Africa. The massacre at Holkrans shocked most Boers into accepting that the longer this war continued, the more unlawful the landscape would become. There were still homesteads in parts of the country where women were alone with their children and suffering. They were sitting targets, particularly in Natal and its borders with Swaziland and Zululand. The southeastern Transvaal and Zululand remained relatively quiet, though, between September 1901 and March 1902. When Kitchener turned his focus to the area around Freyheit, Boerter still lurked in the north with around 500 members of his commando after arriving from the eastern Transvaal in February. The area was called the despair of the British generals because of the hills, the woods, the ravines, the craggy kopjes, and the mountains. So... On the 5th of March, General Bruce Hamilton had arrived at Freyheit to deal with the threat from Buta, although he was still some distance north. Hamilton immediately contacted the Zulu king Dinazulu and asked him to send 250 men to join the column at Engenancheni, east of Freyheit, in order to capture Boer livestock. Freyheit means freedom, by the way. A Zulu MP led by Indabuko, Indabankulu and Dinazulu secretary called Gilbert duly headed off to join Bruce Hamilton. Dinazulu, though, had padded things somewhat, as the force was not 250, it was almost three times the size, around 700. 
Zindazulu explained to Hamilton that he needed the extra men because they were operating in Boer-controlled areas around Freyheit and needed the strength to withstand a Boer attack. It was a short distance away from Blood River, after all, where the Boers had miraculously held off a massive Zulu army with a tiny group of trekkers on the 16th of December 1838. 10,000 Zulus attacked 460 trekkers, 3,000 Zulus died, three trekkers were wounded on what was known as the Day of the Covenant. But this time, with Hamilton, the Zulus were armed with an assortment of rifles as well as assegais, neither type of weapons supplied by the British army. There's been some suggestion that the British supplied the rifles, although the Zulus had been fighting with these weapons since before Kletjwaya's time. It may have been strange for some of the older troopers amongst the British because the Zulu had fought a war against them only 20 years before, a war which included the infamous Battle of St. Luana, where Kletjwaya's army had destroyed an entire column led by Chelmsford. Just a quick aside, I'm talking about the movie Zulu Dawn with podcasters Martin and Andrew, who run History by Hollywood podcast, which will be broadcast later this year. The movie was released in 1976 and was panned, but after viewing the film again recently, it's really interesting to note the performances, which are really good. It's fun to watch a young Bob Hoskins as a gruff sergeant, along with stars like Peter O'Toole, Burt Lancaster, and of course, the great music by Elmer Bernstein. John Hurt was cast in a lead role but was refused entry into then-apartheid South Africa. This was somewhat confusing because Hurt was apolitical. It's thought, though, the South African police may have confused him with actor John Hurd, who was a conscientious objector from South Africa. Back to Freyheit then, 1902. The MP of a few hundred was placed under Hamilton's head of intelligence, F.J. Simmons. They were told to march alongside the British column and to loot livestock and deal with any Boer guerrillas they may intercept. When the Kholusi clan, living 12 miles to the north of Freyheid, heard about the chance of a bit of treasure and looting, more than 700 more Zulus joined up with the British column. There were now around 1,400 armed and motivated Zulus marching alongside the British in Boer territory, motivated and hungry for spear washing, as well as a tidy fee. What could go wrong? Quite a bit, as you'll hear. But not for a month. This mixed column marched about for almost a month, but they captured no Boer fighters, nor managed to seize any cattle. Somewhat disgruntled, the column marched back to Freyheit at the end of March 1902. The Kholusi went home because they lived a few miles away, but Dinazulu's MP was then accommodated in the military station buildings in Freyheit for two weeks, before being ordered to head back to Zululand. The British finally managed to cobble together a mangy herd of 100 cattle as a sort of payment to the members of the MP as they began to drift home, but all was not well. The cattle were described by the Induna in Dabuko as thin and mangy oxen no longer fit for transport work. Worse, the scraggly oxen were also infected with rinderpest, and most had to be slaughtered immediately. Dinazulu was extremely frustrated when he heard about the failure of the operation as well as the refusal of the British to actually pay the Zulu individually for their work. Of course, the fact that the Zulus were marching in such large numbers alongside the British did not go unnoticed by the Boers of Freyheit. This led to an increase in local incidents of brutality and skirmishes. The Boers had long complained to General Louis Boucher of the Zulu snipers hidden in copies who took potshots at Boer commanders as they rode past. 
This latest extravaganza worsened relations between the Boer guerrillas and the Kholusi clan. Relations between the Zulu and the Boers around Frey had, had been strained from the beginning of the war when it was revealed that the Zulu had agreed to send soldiers to join the British at the outbreak of hostilities in October 1899. Lord Roberts had sent them home, but the Boers saw the Kholusi as real enemies in their backyard. At the start of the war, Din Zulu had also been enraged by the Boers. He'd presented a local British magistrate with the names of more than 220 Zulus who'd been conscripted by the Boers to join the Freyhead Commando in 1899. Tensions rose from the start of the war, and that was almost three years ago. Din Zulu, who was an extremely able military tactician, collected intelligence reports from his people on behalf of the British inside northern Zululand and the southeastern Transvaal. This infuriated the Boers still more, particularly as the war turned against them. They blamed black South Africans for spying on them, an accusation that was mostly true. Boers had cleared the felt of Zulu homesteads in the border region, much like their own homes were being razed to the ground by the British. Sometimes there are no good guys in war. By late 1901, the Zulus began occupying vacant Boer farms and actively growing crops on their lands. Vendettas began to develop between individual leaders on both sides in northern Natal. This wasn't just a war between the British with Zulu assistance and the Boers. This was to become a local war between Feldkornet J.A. Potkita and Kholusi chief Sikobobo. All frontiers are infused with this sort of destabilizing personal hatred, particularly when a war is underway at the same time and Potkita was itching to put a final boot into the local Zulu, fully aware that the peace process was underway. In early May, General Louis Boerter gave permission for Feldkornet Potkita to raid Sikobobo's homestead at Tolusini, 12 miles north of Freyhead, which he duly did on May the 1st, 1902. That was revenge for marching with Hamilton, but as we know, when you seek revenge, you better dig two graves. Potkita led a small commando of 73 heavily armed men into Tolusini. They seized 3,800 head of cattle, 1,000 sheep and goats, and summarily drove Sikobobo out of his homestead along with his people to the British garrison stationed at Freyhead. However, this was not an arbitrary attack. Sikobobo had been hobnobbing with the British for some time. This was payback. Historian S.J. Mapalala says it's also highly suspicious that after the attack, Instead of heading for the protection of Zulu clans nearby, Sikobobo headed straight for the British garrison. It's also no secret that Sikobobo and his men were known as Mr. Shepston's commando. Shepston was the British magistrate in Freyhead. General Boerto, when issuing the order, was very specific about how the attack on the Kholusini should be carried out. Women and children not to be targeted, nor the sick or elderly in the village, all residents should be allowed time to collect food before the village was burnt down. Mapalala points out the Boers first accompanied the women and children most of the way to Freyheit just to ensure they got there and then rode off. But why did Boerter agree to raise tensions on the eve of a peace process in Freyheit that he actively supported? He's never managed to fully explain why he gave permission for the raid on the Amakolusi. It seemed that the strategy was just a simple motivation. It was to Teach the Kholusi a lesson. Problem is, the teacher-student role ended up being reversed. It was only a matter of days before the Boer assault on the Kholusi was avenged. 
On the evening of the 5th of May, Sikubobo went to Magistrate Shepston in Freyhat and said he was taking an impi of men who were waiting outside the town to go and recover some of the stolen cattle. Shepston kept that piece of information to himself. He failed to inform the commanding officer of the British forces, that was Hamilton, that the Qulusi were going on a night march. This was curious, particularly because Shepston must have been aware that Sikubobo's plan would not be a simple matter of seize the cattle, because the Boers wouldn't let them. There was an impi, after all. Troops of the impi bloodied their assegais to prove they were men, and this didn't mean stabbing a cow. The washing of the spears meant sticking the ikwa, the stabbing spear named after the sound it made when it was pulled out of somebody's flesh, ikwa, in and out of an enemy, preferably until they were dead. So it was then that at 4 a.m. on the 6th of May, a Tolusi impi of 300 men fell upon the Boer encampment at Holkrans, or in Tachana, as the Zulus call it, north of Freyhead. The Boers had no pickets or sentries posted because there was an informal ceasefire ordered by Lord Kitchener. The Zulus knew this and crept up to the sleeping Boers, employing the traditional three-pronged Zulu battle formation. Then a shot was fired in error by the attackers, but it was too late. In a desperate hand-to-hand struggle, 56 of the 73 Boers were killed. Three others were captured. Sikobobo's arch-enemy, Cornet A.J. Portkita, is believed to have been stabbed 45 times with an assegai. There is some speculation that the chief wanted to make sure his adversary was dead, and after 45 wounds with an ikwa Zulu stabbing spear, you are well and truly dead. Most of the Boer casualties were local farmers, adding to the tension. 52 Zulus were killed, 48 wounded. Back in the eastern Transvaal, General Louis Boerter, who had been visited by General Jan Smuts at the time, called the Amatkolusi assault the foulest deed of the war. Yet, he was partly to blame. Now, an incident like this has obviously been revisited over the years after the Union of South Africa. It has so many overtones of frontier colonial and internecine black-white conflict woven through the story. And just to add flavor to the narrative, Blood River is only a short ride away. And here, just up the road, the Zulus attack the Boers again, with a very different result this time. This incident had a major impact on the farming communities in the utrecht Freyhead district, who still regard Holkrans as cold-blooded murder. The Natal Mercury newspaper described Holkrans as one of the darkest tragedies ever enacted on South African soil. The British ordered an inquiry conducted by Colonel Mills, which concluded that the years of cattle rustling by both sides, desertions by Zulus in the service of the Boers, and the arbitrary executions of Zulus by Boer commandos led to this kind of incident. And what Holkrans succeeded in doing was focus the minds of the Boers on the fact that members of the Falcon outlying areas were increasingly vulnerable to the black clans on their periphery. Ironically, it also helped Boerter and Smuts in that they wanted the Republicans like Stein and De Wett to shift their position from war to the death to consider peace because of the vulnerability of their people. Throughout the war, the fact that the African majority had remained pretty quiet was a striking feature, a surprise. I explained in earlier podcasts that black South Africans facing the Boers and later the British were not like the indigenous Americans or Australians. Basutas, Swazis, Zulus, Koza all survived the onslaught of colonialism. They negotiated and then fought back 
and their clan and kinship structures were largely unshaken, unlike the disasters that befell the Aborigines or Native Americans. But now, at the end of the Zulu War, things were changing, and the Amatolusi example frightened both Boer and Brit. Up to now, African chiefs had been restrained, largely because they were willing to wait and see who ended up controlling South Africa. Things were changing in Africa again. In the Zotbansberg in the northern Transvaal, chiefs were stirring with reports of isolated homesteads coming under attack and cattle being rustled. Local leaders in places like Bethel and Carolina began to invade Boer land. South Africa had become a land of refugees. And as these threats rose, there were the accursed concentration camps always at the back of the Boer generals' minds. You know, between June 1901 and May 1902, around 30,000 Boer women and children had died in these camps, a death toll of extraordinary proportions. It basically amounted to 10% of the Boer populations in the two republics and twice the number of men killed in action. As we heard previously, by October 1901, the death rate in the camps was 344 per thousand. More than 22,000 of these deaths were children under the age of 16. British politician Lloyd George likened the army's methods to those of Herod, who had attempted to crush a little race by killing its young sons and daughters. Historian Peter Warwick notes in his book Black People and the South African War that the suffering and humiliation of women and children in the concentration camps have become implanted indelibly on the collective memory of the Afrikaner people. And so too in the collective memory of black South Africans. By May 1902, 115,700 Africans had been settled temporarily in 66 refugee camps around the country. The death rate was between 380 to 400 per thousand. Contemporary liberal support was focused on helping whites, not blacks. So Emily Hobhouse, for example, had visited Boer concentration camps, but not one black camp. It's now believed up to 36,000 blacks died in these desperate facilities. In March 1902, the Aborigines Protection Society in England wrote a letter to English Prime Minister Joseph Chamberlain saying, Such inquiries may be instituted as should secure for the natives detained no less care and humanity that are now prescribed for the Boer refugee camps. When the Dutch Reformed Church compiled its list of dead in 1941, they completely ignored black camps, even though the church had black members. One of the unforeseen results of the Boer War had also accelerated as food disappeared nationally. Huge numbers of black South Africans had made their way into towns across the length and breadth of the country. This was precisely what the Boers had feared most, and the war had indirectly accelerated urbanization. In the Free State town of Freiburg, the local newspaper had published a story saying, a stranger passing through the streets may be excused for supposing that he had stumbled into a large native location. General Groble had flattened the black settlement called Swartboys near Valmanstal, north of Pretoria, after which the 800 inhabitants under the leadership of Karl Kekana walked to Hammanskral. Their descendants are still there, and the population numbers over 21,000. This is the unforeseen result of the action carried out in the midst of war. Groble and other Boers were driving black South Africans into the cities and towns as they burned down village after village. The longer the war continued, the more the food production was curtailed in the rural areas and the more people flooded into the urban areas.
This is exactly the opposite of what Krobler wanted to see after the war. A true irony if you consider the history of South Africa since. So, enough said. It's time to corral the representatives for the long ride to Vereniging, where these kind of things were debated even more directly by De Wett and Smuts, Boerter and De La Rey, as you'll hear next week. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the inclination, or you can send me a message through the website abwarpodcast.com or my Twitter feed at Des Latham. Until then, goodbye.